Today, we're going to be talking about music. Music has always been used as a vehicle for a message or an emotional statement, from John Lennon's crooning on Imagine to Tupac's swift and heart-wrenching flow on Brenda's Got a Baby. This type of messaging through music played a big role in the turbulent times of the mid-20th century and reflected the American experience at the time. For those at society's margins, such as the new European immigrants from poor backgrounds and for African Americans, this was the struggle for acceptance and influence in the mainstream media despite deep-rooted racism and xenophobia. To be alive during this time is to experience a flood of different voices, all influencing the social and cultural landscape for decades to come by expressing their ideals and passions through their music. You probably recognize the introduction to this piece that I just played without even knowing its name. The hum of the solo clarinet breaking through in a trill and upward smear of notes, grabbing the listener's attention. It is one of the most recognizable musical masterpieces, Rhapsody in Blue, a sustaining icon of jazz and American culture. But what makes this piece so special is not merely the exposition that we just heard but the Dean crossed over artists' fusion of musical genres and sounds together, classical, jazz, and timpanelli. The young composer was George Gershwin, son of Russian Jewish immigrants that lived on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. But before Rhapsody in Blue became a towering musical symbol of the jazz age in the 1920s, as much as F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel The Great Gatsby, Gershwin was known, if known at all, as a promising aspiring songwriter. He played Chopin and Schubert, but he was also interested in Tim Pinale, the collection of New York-based commercial songwriters of ballads, dance music, and vaudeville that defined American popular music at the time. He was also influenced by African-American jazz musicians in Harlem, like saxophonist Lucky Thompson. While there was prosperity in music, the 20s also marked tragedy. While economies around the world floundered in the aftermath of World War I, the United States' economy was the strongest and most vibrant it had ever been. The U.S. government invested heavily and emerged as a leader to other struggling countries. Even with the Spanish flu killing 675,000 Americans in 1918 and 1919, and a depression that gutted the economy in 1920 and 1921, the United States not only recovered, but entered into a decade of unprecedented growth and prosperity. The early 20th century saw an enormous influx of immigrants that culturally shifted the United States as we know it. The lost generation of veterans, scarred by World War I, came home from Europe more willing to break with the past. Previous wars faded and the Roaring Twenties became the theme. The younger generation in the 1920s were rebellious, sexually, artistically, and economically. They spent more money purchasing new technological innovations like automobiles, electric appliances, telephones, and radio. The stock market boomed. Acculturation of immigrants into American life continued. Those left behind embraced radical political change, including socialism and communism, which challenged the prevailing capitalist system. Evidence of this counterculture was especially witnessed in New York, with the infusion of jazz into popular music and the growing popularity of African-American artists. Rhapsody in Blue reflected these changes. Gershwin grew up in New York City, surrounded by people of different ethnicities. Originally titled American Rhapsody, 
The piece spoke to the new America, one that represented the European immigrant experience and its fusion with American culture. While capturing the rhythm, pace, and pulse of New York in the 1920s, Gershwin called for artistic unity, the breaking down of barriers of music between classical, jazz, and the vernacular pop music. When we look at the composition of Rhapsody in Blue, we can really see Gershwin's intentional choices. Denise Chavidian, my violin teacher, definitely knows more about this piece than I do. A rhapsody throws all the rules out of the window. It starts with an exposition, then the development of a bluesy march, then the broad tune, dance, quasi recap, and finale. As far as the piece goes, is it perfectly structured? No. The score rambles, there are odd digressions. But... Gershwin says, I heard it as sort of a musical kaleidoscope of America, of our vast melting pot, of our unduplicated national pep, of our blues out of metropolitan madness. And it has certainly been ingrained into the national consciousness ever since its first debut. Representative of not just New York, Rhapsody in Blue represents the jumbled nature of America in the beginning decades of the 20th century, with its nervousness and its openness and its sense of optimistic striving. Similarly, Dizzy Gillespie also created a new genre of American music. In 1942, Dizzy Gillespie came up with a hit song called A Night in Tunisia. While it was originally conceived with the intention of being album fellow, the song took off to the surprise of Gillespie. Its walking bass line, something common in today's music, was revolutionary for its time. The song's Afro-Cuban musical influences were worn on its sleeve, which was seen as a breaking of conventions from 1940s jazz. Gillespie was a man who broke conventions in many types of ways. He was one of the ringleaders of the bebop movement of music, a movement founded by black people as a rebellion against the status quo. Dizzy Gillespie said the following about the genre he popularized. He didn't go out and make speeches or say, let's play eight bars of protest. He just played our music and let it go at that. The music proclaimed our identity. It make every statement we truly wanted to make. The critic black backlash to this new genre was intense. Even being a black musician was considered to be nonconformist in and of itself, which made many black musicians act out against the status quo even more strongly. A night in Tunisia's explosive success and the rising popularity of the bebop genre was a sign of change. It was a sign of African-American unrest and frustration during World War II, a sign that change was coming. Change would come, eventually, but it would take African-Americans of the past nearly 20 years until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 would be passed. Two years before the act passed, however, a different song came out with its disregard for musical convention. Oi Como Va is an Afro-Cuban cha-cha-cha by Tito Puente. Tito Puente, a second-generation Puerto Rican immigrant, is privy to many genres of music while growing up in New York. Indeed, his New Yorker roots helped him develop 
both the popularization of the Afro-Cuban genre and his love of the state. He recalled, Jews, Italians, Irish, Blacks, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Asians, everyone was equal under the roof of the Palladium, a theater in New York, because everyone was there to dig the music and to dance. For Puente, his music was a form of self-expression of his Latin roots. Something important to note is the time period. The song was released in 1962, the same year President Kennedy signed the Migration and Refugee Act. This was aimed to help Cuban refugees during the reign of Fidel Castro and the increasing tensions between the two countries, which brought over a wave of refugees and immigrants from Cuba. New York, Juente felt, was a place where immigrants and ethnicities from all over could convene and share their culture via music. While Puente didn't use his platform to inspire change or to rebel against the status quo like Gillespie, he did use it to spread his Latin roots in the mainstream. Latin influence has never left popular music either. Nowadays, music from Shakira, J-Lo, and Cardi B dominate the charts. Because of the struggle for acceptance all the old Latin artists had to face, we're now able to enjoy Latin music from Latin creators. We have seen how African Americans felt confident to make strides in the civil rights movement and how Cubans felt protected. Jews were confidently able to reflect on their past. Fiddler on the Roof, a Broadway staple performed in every part of the world, a cultural phenomenon known by most. On September 22, 1964, the musical Fiddler on the Roof opened on Broadway. Originally based on Shalom Alachim's novel, Tevya the Dairyman and the Railroad Stories written in 1912, Joseph Stein's storybook follows the shtetl, or village in Yiddish, of Anatevka in Eastern Europe in 1905. Together, in the hands of producer Harold Prince and director Jerome Robbins, Sheldon Harnick's lyrics and Jerry Box's score were able to make the words come to life on stage. The story describes Tevya, a Jewish dairyman who struggles to support his wife and five daughters in Tsarist Russia, in a musical where the sound is a reflection of klezmer music and Yiddish, the very elements of Judaic culture. Based on my grandpa's story in the 1930s, I feel confident in saying that Jews faced similar circumstances earlier in time in Europe as well. Let's just say, a Jew would also not want to live in Russia, especially through the 19th century. A result of persistent persecution and global anti-Semitism, Jewish people tended to be the scapegoat for the misfortunes of others and were blamed for violent or political acts. And Russian Jewry was dense. In 1905, Russian officials staged many pogroms, officially mandated slaughter, upon the poor, pious Jewish shtetls. Life was hard, and they faced fateful decisions like, should we try to preserve our isolated community as it is in the context of the severe political changes occurring in Russia? Or should we leave behind what we know and forge a new life somewhere else? Denise Chavidian speaks again on her immigration from Romania to the United States. 
Well, uh, it was tough. <laughs> it's in, you know, the good thing in communism, they kind of took care of everyone. Um, when you finish school, you have a job. Um, you, you kind of have a security. And when I got in here, it was no one cared about who am I, where I'm coming from, what do I know, what I want to do. I had to figure out everything on my own. Mm. And it was like in the jungle, survival. <laughs> you have to, to fight to survive because nobody cared. But uh, it, it, the whole the whole thing it's it's an adventure from the beginning to the end. It's very hard. It's like I came with the violin, my son, and the luggage. That's all we had. Fiddler on the Roof reacts to this universal debate the tug between tradition and modernity. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! scale we see Tevio's family dissipate as traditions of piety and faith and values are challenged. Zeidel challenges the social norm, rejecting arranged marriage to marry the person she loves. Hodel challenges the place of old religious traditions in a changing world. Chava challenges the political system and the heart of their family's life, their Judaism, by marrying a Russian Orthodox Christian. Without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as... as as a fiddler on the roof. Like the changes Tevye saw in his own family in the early 1900s, the 1960s in America, when the Broadway play made its debut, echoed the same important themes. We see a breakdown of systems on all levels of society. Families no longer lived with as much extended family. With the technological advances in automobiles and public transportation, geographic mobility was possible. People could spread out. They could be free. Insert hippie movement. Women could participate more in the economic and political spheres. People started to veer away from the things they had done before, as they challenged familial values and expectations. Individualism was encouraged and celebrated. By the 1960s, a generational gap emerged in the U.S. between the young who sought change in societal norms and the old who were more comfortable with the status quo. In the 60s, young people protested previous political and social systems. Specifically, the Vietnam War spurred anti-war protests. The Civil Rights Movement challenged how we treated our fellow African-American citizens. Deep social tensions resulted in political assassinations. With the creation of birth control, women gained more sexual and economic freedom. Hmm, I wonder how Tevya might have thought about the 60s. Sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, swiftly flow the day.
Unfortunately, we cannot travel back in time. While unable to ask the creators of these songs why they made them, and could only infer based on their past actions. I'm commonly known around campus as a techie person, because I don't broadcast the creative side of me all that often. However, due to my interest in the arts, I have a lot of interactions with Cleo, one of my school's art teachers. One day, after class, I stayed behind in the classroom to wait for my afternoon activity. I don't remember the exact words, but in our idle chat, he had this to say about art. Art provides a subconscious reflection of an artist's psyche. Every piece of art created reflects the creator's life far more accurately than talking to them ever could. I think about these words a lot, and I couldn't help but think about them during the research for this podcast. Hearing Dizzy Gillespie and George Goshwin, Fiddler's Originators and Tito Puente show off what they hold dear to their heart in the form of a song made me genuinely emotional. These Americans, while separated by the flow of time, all saying about what they held dear, the ideals they fought for, the heritage that ran through their veins. They used their free speech to sing about what they thought mattered. Many people might say that higher goals like sharing your ideals and passions is probably not what starving musicians wanted to achieve. They most likely just played around with music and used immigrant influence to profit off a new sound. And while I don't think this is an incorrect opinion, I do believe that one can have multiple motives in mind when creating a song. It's much easier to make music when you're passionate about your work. Art is an emotional process, and it's ultimately an impossible venture to create something and distance yourself completely. Sooner or later, cracks will show. People might also say that immigrants did not want to express their cultural identity at all. They wanted to assimilate into quote-unquote American culture as it was. My grandpa weighs in on this. Well, things were very difficult because they didn't speak English very well. Even though when they came to this country, they lived in Brooklyn for a year. And my father, not what he did for a profession, but you know, he had to learn English. So my mother and my father went to classes, you know, night classes, uh, to learn English. Friends uh, had certain things going on in church. I went into the churches with them. Oh, really? Yeah. Denise also shares her story. In, in, in New York, there's some, some parts where there's Romanian people, but I don't know about the culture that they have. <laughs> yeah. Just Romanian people, you know, struggling to survive. It's, it's not about culture. Uh, we came with at a different level and we didn't want to get into yeah. different stuff, yeah. It's also important to note that the immigrant experience is not all rosy. It's not all about culture. It's not all about making music. We were very, very lucky because we already had family that already come to the States. And you couldn't get into the United States in those days unless you would have somebody sponsor you. Sponsoring you made, so they had to guarantee that they would provide the money and take care of you for a year, so you wouldn't be a drain on the government. Denise speaks to her experience about being a musician and an immigrant. Coming from a small communist country in Eastern Europe and end up in the golden United States, uh, it was, 
it was fascinating. I was very proud of myself. Even, you know, walking on American ground made me feel very proud of myself that I, I got to the point to be here. I was very happy and exactly my American team was have a good life and play the violin from the first week I came here that I'm going to meet people and they will embrace me. <laughs> I, was, I didn't know exactly how, how things are going. I didn't know. Denise told me that she had family in the U.S. that were actually going to help her. But my husband's relatives just kick us out after a week. He put them up at a cheap motel and didn't see them ever again. I had a good life in Romania. I had everything. I had a house. I had a car. I had a job. I was traveling the world. I would have never ended up in here if my husband wouldn't made the decision for us. I then asked her about what she thought of our thesis, that many different voices influence the social and cultural landscape for decades to come, and that she has expressed her ideals and passions through music. That was my passion, and the ideal is to make a life with music, you know, as a Romanian immigrant, and I did it. So you have your answer. <laughs> do you, do, you, do is there any, like, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like, um, is in any way that not true? It's not true. It's very true. Twentieth century America was a chaotic time. There were trials and tribulations, wars fought and won, and rights gained. All because of the American citizens' passion for what they thought was right, and their willingness to express that sentiment. And this American passion was reflected by the aforementioned artists through their music. Because, ultimately, being an American during this time was to wear your passion on your sleeve. It was for finding freedom by fighting Nazis and ending segregation. It was to re rebel against the status quo and, for, and to advocate for what was right. Thank you.